my uh, perception was that Australian people, like if you're born in Australia and like your parents are from Australia, you were slightly richer. Okay. And I felt like we, I knew I was, I could recognize that we didn't have certain things like money wise, but I didn't, I didn't feel like we were necessarily poor, but I felt like we were definitely a bit under that. Cause you know, just little, like small things, but like, you know, you see people celebrating Christmas or birthdays, they have these parties and they get presents and all these things. And we didn't really have that. And it's partly cultural because Cambodians don't really celebrate birthdays. Okay. But, but when we were kids, like they knew that we, we wanted to celebrate birthdays and we couldn't maybe afford as much. We didn't really go on, on too many holidays either. So that played a part in terms of, I just like seeing like, you know, you kind of not rank yourself, but you see, you compare the others and you go to their houses, you feel like, okay, they're kind of rich or sure. maybe we feel less rich. Uh, later on, I completely like, I realized that we were rich in our own ways because we always had, ate good. We, anything we really needed, we could, we could get, whether it was playing soccer or whatever that was. Yeah. But I don't think it really played too much of a factor outside knowing that sort of value. But then I think, you know, incidents of sort of ra- like racial kind of things, mm-hmm. like played it, played its part, but not really in primary school, maybe in high school a little bit where okay. there was some sort of some racial incidents that kind of happen, whether it's on soccer or, yeah. and it kind of makes you feel a bit realizing that you're not born here is sort of, you can be treated a bit differently. Yeah. It hasn't happened so much in my life, but it has happened. You, know? you were born exactly. here as well, right? Exactly. I was born here. So I felt like it feels like, but you don't feel like, sure. Um, Sometimes you look Cambodian. Look Cambodian, exactly. So it's Cambodian like, parents, exactly. So when you're when you look different, and you, even though you're born here, you feel there is um, there is a separation. Like if someone asks you, you know, like what are you? You know, like what's your background? Yeah. If I was in overseas, I'd probably say I'm Australian. But over here, you say I'm Cambodian. I'm Ren McDonald, and this is the Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth or I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hope Initiative. My name is Rin MacDonald. Thank you for joining me for episode number 133 with Andrew Duong. Andrew and I were teammates back in 2010 and since have only crossed paths a couple of times but in that year playing soccer together I could tell he was just a really good honest genuine dude and catching up with him in this conversation proved that to me he has lived an interesting life in those 13 years but also prior and we delve into both and how I had no idea of his love for art and painting and all things creativity it's interesting when yeah i guess you're becoming more of yourself as a young adult how you choose to keep certain things private as opposed to others but in this conversation we delve into that and i really enjoyed it so thank you to andrew for taking the time and to you all for listening if you enjoyed this conversation i would love for you to share it with a family member or friend someone that you think may benefit from it or even if you you know, have no one that comes to mind specifically to share it on socials, you know what to do. And without further ado, we'll jump into this conversation with Andrew Duong. Welcome to the Hope Initiative. Thanks for having me, Rin. Yeah. Looking forward to chatting more. Yeah. You're welcome, brother. Thank you for coming to my home today. It's been, I think I was reflecting on it. Yeah. Before you got here today, we 
saw each other in 2021. You were playing for Masnod United in a cup game against my Whitehorse United. Yes. And uh, I, wasn't, I was injured, classic, pre-season, and yes. you were playing, I think, left back. So I probably would have been playing on you had I been fit. But that was the last time we saw each other. But previously to that, teammates uh, knocked you way back in 2011. Yeah. Well, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, we, we should have, we, I could have been playing you that day. Yeah. Um, you guys beat us, knocked us out of the cup, I think, 3-0 or 3-1. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Pouring day, Bentley, down in Bentley. Yeah. Bentley Greens, I think. I think our team were, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the podcast, we're acting like assholes that day. Yeah, but we weren't, we weren't much better. Were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of egos in our team. The whole team collapsed pretty soon after that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 2021, but then previous to that, 10 years prior, we were teammates. That's how we met at Knox City. Mm-hmm. What are your memories of that time under Daryl Roberts? It was, I had a, it was a great time. It was the first time playing, it was like sort of a first time pretty much moving out of a reserves team to a new team and playing a new position. I had been defender all my life and then I moved into midfield. Mm. I just said that, told the coach that even though I never played that role. And it's just like playing a different game when you play midfield. Like defense is often you just stopping people playing. Mm. And then midfield was actually just get to enjoy the game, get on the ball. And it was a good group of players. Like we had a we had a good side for a reserves team. What a great team. Um, a really good team. And it was just a good group of players. And I feel like I just enjoyed playing all the time with that group and got to make new friends as well, which is good. Yeah. You're a little bit older than me, I think. How old are you? I'm 31. 31, yes. Yeah, so th- I'll be 31 in October this year. Yeah. But I remember reserves, that was the first year that I didn't play at Whitehorse, which I've played at every year, not playing this year, but had played at all prior and since, but have a lot of good memories. And yeah, some of our teammates went on to play, like Wade Decker, for example. He's been a previous guest on the podcast. Yeah, played A-League, scored on debut yep. for, uh, for Melbourne City. Yeah. Away against Sydney. Pretty cool. I live vicariously through him sometimes yeah. like that. But yeah, I, I had some some good memories. How did you how did you get into playing playing soccer, playing football? Uh, for me, I just I was just playing at school in like grade three or four, and I really enjoyed it. And I'd never been in sort of organized sport before, so I pretty much begged my parents to let me play. Yeah. They were just like, no, we don't want you to play. Really? They're like, it's expensive. It was only like $180, but I, I guarantee if the $180 was going to maths tuition, they would be <laughs> like, no problem, no worries. <laughs> but it was a big deal, so I had to be like, you know, you don't have to give me any gift for birthday or anything. I just really want to play, and then I convinced them, and then I think I started in grade five, so it would have been like 10, 11. And, yeah, I, I was pretty pretty bad at the start, but um, I just enjoyed getting to play I guess I, I enjoyed training the most I think I was really nervous at games yeah right and I would sometimes play not play but I just loved training yeah yeah what was your first club not a wanting city oh so I stayed there for many years maybe six I thought I'd stay there for the rest of my life yeah at one point when I was like a kid until I you know unless a huge opportunity came up I wanted to stay there forever yep yep mm. yeah cool Ange Postacoglu was at uh, not wanting right yeah, yeah, he even came to some games. I'm pretty sure I played terrible those days, but um, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, I, I, I think I kind of left by the time they came a really professional club. Right, came like an academy. Yeah, so I was there prior to those days. Yeah, in the juniors when there was just like a normal club. Yeah, cool. Yeah. You, me- you mentioned if the money had been toward math tuition, 
they would have maybe oh, tongue yeah. in cheek yeah. been, been happy to do it. Your second generation Cambodian? Yeah, so right. well my yeah, my, my parents are born in Cambodia, but I was born in Australia. Yeah. So they definitely had a focus on um they definitely focus on education, like like many Asian parents. So they didn't like they didn't mind that I was into extra things, but they wanted me to focus on school the most. Yeah. Like so sometimes sport and kind of schooling was kind of conflicting with each other a little bit. Which they 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 allowed me to keep keep doing it, and I would have pushed back regardless. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was always that kind of pressure to to do well in school. Yeah, yeah. Could you take me back to your first memory, if you could? You said you were born here in Melbourne. Yep. Could you take me back wherever, whatever triggers when I ask you that first memory, and if you can bring us forward to today, touching on maybe some key points in your life whatever that looks like for you. Okay. Um, yeah. I was thinking about this actually before because I, when I listened to one of your podcasts, the only question I really uh, heard at the beginning was the earliest memory and I was trying to think of what my earliest memory was. Yeah. It's hard to know if this is my earliest memory, but this one something that just sticks out in my mind a little bit was that when I was a, really quite younger, well, there's a tradition in Chinese New Year, uh, Lunar New Year, where you get these red envelopes, you can get them from older people and they give them to you. Yeah. But what my parents would often do is that because I was too young to, to know what to do with that money, they would just take it and just hold it for me. Okay. And they would just, just hold it, they'll actually keep it for me for, for future. But then um, I remember once my uncle gave me one and it had $2 coin in it. And because it was a small amount, my my parents let me keep it. Yeah. So I remember being in my grandma's house and getting receiving this red envelope and this $2 coin. And I, I recently did an artwork about it actually as well. Oh, like, wow. um, And I, I made an artwork that had the... It was a red envelope and I used the $2 coin as sort of the emblem in the middle. It usually has some kind of Chinese writing these red envelopes, but I used a $2 coin as sort of the emblem in the middle. And then the background was my grandma's, the wallpaper of my grandma's house. Because I would, it's just like a memory being in that space because it's such an iconic old school wallpaper. wallpaper. <laughs> like you can kind of imagine really patterned like brown gold kind of look. So that's an early memory. So I think of like just thinking of family yeah. and... I guess that you know played into me creating art. So I guess I guess art, some milestones we talk about football, playing football, starting football is a, a milestone in itself, and then actually getting into art. So I would say I always liked drawing, mm-hmm. and I did drawing when I was you know when I was a kid and I enjoyed it. And my cousins were really good at drawing, so like I think I, that kind of inspired me. So I see my cousins drawing just like anime or wolverine or some characters yeah. like that i was like that's so cool you know i want to be able to do that so yeah. i just start by drawing pokemon dragon ball z characters when i was a kid and then as i got older i didn't think i was going to pursue art yeah. but then once i got to year 12 i had chosen all these subjects that wouldn't allow me to get into an arts course <laughs> stupidly enough but i decided that at that time i was like oh, i love art why don't i just do something at uni that i'll enjoy I thought that I would enjoy engineering, but what I really liked about engineering was the creative side, which yeah. engineering is more maths, a lot of it, you know, like yeah. it's very maths heavy. So I thought, actually, I'm not going to enjoy that. So I realized what I would probably enjoy was visual art. So I made a decision at that time to pursue it, try pursue it anyway. And I made a plan with this course advisor at our school, which is basically once I get into uni, I got to pick up all these art electives. And then build up a folio and get into an interview and then transfer into a visual arts course. Yep. And even that was hard because they don't even let you choose art electives unless you have a folio. So I was like, fuck. Right. So I, sorry, I was trying to swear. No, you're fine. Then uh, what's it called? Yeah, two weeks before I could 
get into the electives. They said, you need to bring a folio to the class. So I just spent like two, three weeks just doing drawings like every single day from like wake up, go to bed, wake up, go to bed, drawing for two weeks. Oh. And then I got into the electives. And then with the electives, I built a folio that I eventually transferred into the visual arts course. Wow. So that's how I got into arts and just studied it and really enjoyed it. And it was like, okay, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life in some capacity. So that's, that was... Sounds like a big moment, big few weeks. Big few weeks, yeah. So it was like, it all kind of like played out through my life, art. But I guess that's a milestone in sort of deciding once I was just going to study it in uni. And once I actually started doing it, I knew I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Like painting at uni, I was like, wow, I could do this, keep, keep doing this. Mm. So that was a milestone for sure in itself. Love it. On, on that, where was like the first moment you, you mentioned getting that, you know, red envelope and the memory of your grandmother's walls? I can imagine I lived in a house in Burwood when I was quite young and very distinct just, yeah, wallpaper probably was built in like the 80s or 90s, but it's classic. Yeah. I can even remember like the smell yep. of the house. Yes. So maybe you had, yeah, that similar thought, but like the the feeling to draw, where was that very first sort of moment? Was it seeing, was it your cousins doing like the different characters? I think even before that, my cousins, it was just seeing my dad showed, he did a drawing of one of us, I was like a face. I think it probably wasn't even that good at the time, but yeah. as a kid, I was just so like, like, inspired by the fact that someone could draw something that looks like someone yeah. with their hand and I was like this is amazing so I, th- I think that was a, uh, a part of it and then my cousin's doing it as well but I think as well like once you once I had done a drawing and tried it myself and I had a bit of skill and then like there's that sort of admiration from someone even if it's like a, a school friend being like, oh whoa look how you drew that Pokemon I'm like wow this is a good feeling <laughs> yeah like it was a nice feeling to be able to show someone show someone something that I created and that they liked it. Yeah. And I wasn't that I'd say I was was not that confident as a kid when I grew up. So anytime someone gave kind of praise like that, I was quite drawn to it. So I think it was the praise at the beginning as well. And also just seeing yeah. stuff that I really was really liked and someone like created something that I was quite like admired, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's understandable. Yeah. Talk to me about your family life. Did you have any siblings growing up? I can't remember um, if we talked about this, uh, you know, oh, 12 years ago. Yeah, I had a sister. So I have a sister, sorry. Sister? I have yeah. a sister. <laughs> she's still alive. Um, no, she's, um, I have a sister. I got, yeah, mom and dad. And yeah, uh, she, she, did, she, yeah, she did a bit of, bit of art as well. I kind of followed her footsteps for a bit. Yeah. Um, she was studying marketing. Yeah. And I studied marketing as well just because I wasn't sure what to choose in uni yeah. until I decided to do visual arts. But I just kind of like the night before, I'm like, yeah, marketing sounds good. I guess <laughs> that's probably covering a lot of areas. Yeah, And yeah, we kind of grew up, we all actually stayed and lived in, a, in a, at the home for quite a while. So she, I think she moved out when she was around like... 27, 28 kind of age. Yeah. Is she a bit older than you? A bit older than me, like three years older than me. Okay. And I moved out around 25, 26, a bit older. Yeah. So. Is there yeah. any reason for that, do you think? Or is that just a cultural thing? I think it's partly or? a cultural thing because yeah. all my cousins, all our family, like they all stayed, like have lived in their place with their parents until at least 25. Yeah. And I think it's just because they kind of want you to stay. They don't want you to pay rent. They think rent is a waste of money. Right. That's a huge like no for them. They're like yeah. don't pay rent. You're throwing money away. And Cambodian parents, they kind of just like, 
the culture is that in, in Cambodia, people would live together. They wouldn't move out unless they got married and they just needed more space in the house. Right. And even then, parents would probably live together. It's very like live. It's very like um, people almost like very much live for each other. Like everything they do in the day is for someone else, mm. and someone else is looking after you, kind of thing. That's so nice. I think I think that's the sort of culture which is really beautiful mm. as well. Like. You know, in our household, like aunties, they always buy heaps of things or they make heaps of food and then they spread it to the other aunties and uncles. Yeah. And it's sort of vice versa too. So yeah, that's the kind of culture we got brought up in that was very family oriented and like being with family and sticking with family. So hard, it was hard to move. And like Cambodian parents, they just look after you completely. My mum would do all the cooking, yeah. want to do all the cleaning. And even if I tried to cook or clean, she would kind of just take over. <laughs> so it was very comfortable living, very fortunate. Like even though we weren't um, rich, I felt very like very fortunate in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, cool. Yeah. Have you ever been back to Cambodia? I've been I've been there. Oh, your parents yeah, I had I had been there once. So and had had even been to where my parents were born as well. So I only been there once. I do want to go again. And so I went to um, the village where my parents were born, which is historically was a very poor village. Now it's now it's not that poor, poor in a sense, but like not poor as well because at the time prior to war, yeah. in that city called Sphyrian, it's like um, near the border of Cambodia, Vietnam. It, it was it was poor, but people were not like there was no homeless there at the okay. same time because yeah. people would support each other. There was enough food for everyone, mm. but it, in terms of like economically, it was a poor, poor, poor village. Sure. Now it's increased in terms of its like um, businesses that are moving there and things like that. But yeah, it was amazing to go there. I got to see my parents' house, which is basically like almost like a really small sort of like farm shed kind of house. Yeah. Tiny place. And then it was amazing when I went there, my mom, she ran into neighbours that she hadn't seen for, I don't know, like 25, 20, 30 years. And they recognised each other and they just wow. broke into tears. Wow. And they just started like, they got us to sit down and gave us like like these fruits and stuff to eat. And then, yeah, it was very nice, a really nice moment. I got to see my, I think it was uh, great-grandparents sort of, grave uh, sorry tombstone yeah that they had there so that was oh. nice as well yeah amazing experience yeah yeah i bet that's yeah. that's cool and i guess just you speaking on like the community and the like the living in together until yeah. a certain age or not necessarily even a certain age but just like everyone taking care of sort of one another i think you coined it like living for others sort of like being of service i think is is really cool and something that i think you know, I was born here in Australia and I have some, you know, Dutch heritage, but I've never mm. been back to Holland. Yep. But my mum's parents were born there. I remember having more, I guess, uh, what would be the best way to describe it? Just, yeah, community values. Like when my Oma and Opa were alive, I remember mm. going and watching the World Cup with, with my Opa when yep. Holland were playing. I think this would have been back in like 2006, maybe maybe even younger, maybe 2002 World Cup, going yeah. to like the Dutch club. But yeah, I feel like it was probably more intense for for you having parents who were born there in, in another country. When you were growing up, did you feel like that was either a positive or a mind, you know, or a negative? Were you like conscious of, of that in any way? I, yeah, that's interesting. I was conscious of it a little bit thinking that I don't know. I think my 
perception was that Australian people, like if you're born in Australia and like your parents are from Australia, you were slightly richer. Okay. And I felt like we, I knew I was, I could recognize that we didn't have certain things like money wise, but I didn't, I didn't feel like we were necessarily poor, but I felt like we were definitely a bit under that because, you know, just little, like small things, but like, you know, you see people celebrating Christmas or birthdays, they have these parties and they get presents and all these things. We didn't really have that. And it's partly cultural because Cambodians don't really celebrate birthdays. Okay. But, but when we were kids, like they knew that we, we wanted to celebrate birthdays and we couldn't maybe afford as much. We didn't really go on, on too many holidays either. So that played a part in terms of I just like seeing like, you know, you kind of not rank yourself, but you see, you compare the others and you go to their houses, you feel like, okay, they're kind of rich or sure. maybe we feel less rich. Uh, later on, I completely like, I realized that we were rich in our own ways because we always ate, ate good. We, anything we really needed, we, we could get, whether it was playing soccer or whatever that was. Yeah. But I don't think it really played too much of a factor outside knowing that sort of value. But then I think, you know, incidents of sort of ra- like racial kind of things mm. like played it played its part but not really in primary school maybe in high school a little bit where okay. there was some sort of some racial incidents that kind of happen whether it's on soccer or yeah and it kind of makes you feel a bit realizing that you're not born here is sort of you can be treated a bit differently yeah it hasn't happened so much in my life but it has happened you know you were born exactly. here as well right exactly i was born here so i felt like it feels like but you don't feel like sure um, Sometimes you look Cambodian. Look Cambodian, exactly. So you Cambodian like, parents, exactly. So when you're when you look different, and you, even though you're born here, you feel there is um, there is a separation. Like if someone asks you, you know, like what are you? You know, like what's your background? Yeah. If I was in overseas, I'd probably say I'm Australian. But over here, you say I'm Cambodian. So there's a, that, there's different answers that kind of apply in different situations. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't know if my parents. Yeah, I, th- I think it was just more about my own identity, mm. how it kind of influenced how I think others may have perceived myself. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, man. Yeah. I imagine it maybe would happen more on the soccer field, having played for 20-odd years myself. I know that things can get quite heated yeah. at times, not that it, it makes racism or, or any form of, of that okay, mm. but I've definitely witnessed it uh, myself. But I... I'm curious to know, like, even someone just asking, where are you from? Like, how often does does that happen? Would that happen for you? It happens pretty regularly. I think if you come from a migrant background and you look different, people ask where you're from is very common. And, yeah. like... And what's your, like, reaction to that? Like, you... I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not offended by it. I feel like people just, like, they just frame me a question that is, like, I might say... Uh, I usually just answer that I was born here, but my parents are born in Cambodia. Because I just know what they're really asking. Yeah. Like, I know that when they, people say, where are you from... 99% of the time they're asking like what's my background yeah, and right. was I born here yeah. rather than oh I'm from Vermont <laughs> I, was born, I was born in Melbourne <laughs> what else do you want to know I was born in Vermont <laughs> <laughs> what else do you want to know so I know that's what like usually the question is yeah totally yeah. I mean I, I sort of like asking it like I worked at the markets these past weekends uh, this past weekend I should say and you know, do that. Obviously, I have this podcast where I like, you know, interacting and meeting people. And I love asking people, like, if they've got an accent, you know, mm. where they're from. Originally, there was a an Indian fellow yesterday, but he was born in Liverpool, but he didn't have yeah. a Scouse accent. Like, yeah. he had an English accent, but I'm pretty sure he was, like, Punjabi, born in Liverpool in the UK, but had, like, a, a Cockney accent almost. And it's interesting. And I think it should be 
should be celebrated. I think it's really cool that you have that heritage. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the point of, I guess, the community and the, the living in and you sort of saying that maybe you felt like you had less than, say, the, you know, Australians or people that, you know, their parents are born here or their grandparents are born here. I'd argue that the, the fact that you had access to those things that ultimately you need, whether it's, you know, food, clothing, shelter, you know, those bare necessities and then able to play football, that's great. Yeah. Like all these extra things that people chase these days definitely is, is a lot of crap. Definitely, 100%. And, like, um, there's things that, like, I really, really recognise now that how fortunate we were because, like, I, then I compare, my mom's a really good cook and I didn't realise that she was a really good cook until later in my life, awesome. how good of a cook she is. Like Since you moved out of home, probably? Since I moved out of home, <laughs> yeah, and how my bad, how, I'm actually okay at cooking, but my mom's really good. Yeah. And like- I'm sure you would have been better if she'd let you die to eh? Yeah, hopefully. But, uh, but I mean, she, she now teaches me things. She wouldn't even nice. teach us how to cook either because she's like, no, nah, no, nah, I want you to focus on your studies. So yeah. Like now when I go over, she basically gives us like enough, me enough food for like two, three days, basically. Wow. Every time I go over, I'm talking like bags of best of the vegetables, fruits, and then like pre-cooked meals into containers Incredible. Um, for me and my partner as well. So it's, I'm very lucky to have that. But like, I only noticed that like maybe later on that our food was so good because it's like Cambodian food has like a lot of, um, you know, I guess Australia that has its own. Does, it's the cuisine is different. Australia has no uh, cultural food. Yeah. I, well, you're Australian as well. <laughs> so, so, you yeah. tell me sausages, mash, and peas. That's yeah, what exactly, my dad used to make me. So like, that's crap. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's good, it's, but it's not anything. It's different. Yeah, it's completely different. So like, I always, I'm always curious when people say, "What is Australian food and what what is that?" Because like, yeah. But my parents, they, they made really good food, and like, I only realized that afterwards, leaving the home and comparing what you know even other households would make mm. and sometimes i'd really like it if i go to a friend's house they have like like something like mashed potato and sausage like oh this is so good you know? <laughs> it's just different different because you know? yeah. it's different but then later on when you compare the, the two foods in life like what my mom would make and what i could get even at pub meals whatever it's like my mom's food was like top 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 top, top tier. tier top <laughs> tier like some of the food takes like you know, it will take like six, seven hours to make wow. prepare, you know, and you don't realize the work that is required in food. Yeah. And it's a beautiful way that like, I think Cambodians, they often communicate in food. Like when yeah. we at the dinner table, they won't only be speaking, but like, it's like they, people show love through food. Like mm. often aunties and uncles, they bring fruit to each other. They bring food to each other. It's like their way of communicating like love to each other. The amount of work they put into food to give to someone, that's like in itself sharing this message of love or something like that. Yeah, I love that. Before yeah. you, you mentioned even just the word love, I was going to say this because my mum is a phenomenal cook as well. Mm. Uh, so she doesn't do too many like traditional Dutch meals these days, but you know, your classic roast, different things like that. But she actively says like, she makes it with love and yeah. that's what take, makes it taste better. Yes. And it's true. It's like the energy that you put in when you're cooking, when you're preparing, you know who you're going to be cooking it for. Definitely. It is an important thing. So it's, I think, really cool that you touch on that as a way that, yeah, Cambodians do that, communicate, sure. share love through through food. Yeah, and I think it's played throughout my life because the people I'm, I surround myself with, even friends, they're all good cooks. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Like one friend's basically like a chef and he has a similar saying where it's like, we often cook together. It's like, oh, the more hands that are involved, the better it's going to taste because mm. more love involved, more people involved. Yeah. And it is because it's like, you're kind of experiencing it together. 
the, the process of cooking yeah. and it's like you're kind of enjoying the process and you're kind of waiting together for that food and it comes together mm. when you're eating it and you're, you're with good company it's going to taste good like yeah it's um yeah i love it i'm, I'm a big foodie you could probably already tell from when i'm, yeah. how I'm talking but um i just love food and what it can do so well it's it's interesting because something we all all humans have to eat yes to live you can fast for a few days at a time if you really want to, but you have to have food to eat. And as obvious as that sounds, like the ability to cook is a creative thing that is a lot of fun. In my early 20s, like when we first met, how old would I have been? Like 18. Mm. Dude, I couldn't cook like at all. And it wasn't really actually until lockdowns for me when I was forced to stay home and have more time at home that I really took a liking to cook. Now I lived out of home before then, but... Honestly, it was just like very basic in what I would make. Like super, like we talked about sausages, mashed potato and peas before. Like I didn't even do mash potato. Yep. <laughs> like I couldn't even do that. I would just cook like sausages or a bit of meat and then vegetables, like steamed vegetables. Mm. But the past few years, it has just been, you know, enjoying that creative side, making all random different things. I mm. love it now. I don't know if you directly do that yourself because you said you're surrounded by foodies but yeah. as a creative human you're an artist which i think would you know talk a lot about in a moment but what what does that look like for you like do you do you love to cook i love it. yeah i i i think i was influenced as well by my cousins all my cousins most of my cousins worked in food industry some of them started their own sort of food places as well yeah as part of franchises or cousins own started this cupcake business but and one my closest cousin who's probably one of my closest like one of my closest friends as well which we grew up together he went to culinary school as well so he always had a love for cooking so when he was like even like year seven year eight we and i was oh yeah and i would have been like a few years older than him we we started he started inviting me over to his house so we could cook because i couldn't cook at my house my mom would take over and be like what are you doing Or just like would not kind of let us. So I would go to his house. He would cook like every couple of weeks. So we made a lot of dishes together. Nice. Just going on YouTube, learning how to make different recipes. So that was where I gained my love of cooking. Yeah. Doing it with like, you know, my cousin and just enjoying it and having kind of any kind of food you want, what you like, you can kind of just make it, which is great. And I love that process. So that's where it definitely started for me. Mm. That love of cooking. Yeah. So my cousin going over and we'd play some video games after or play soccer Amazing. while the food's like cooking. It's, it was just the best, best days. Yeah. Yep. How old were yeah. you then? I would have been around probably 14 and we did it till I was like maybe, you know, 20s. We do it, tried to maybe once a month. Yeah. Or, or, or roughly. I mean, and he's still really into food as well. So we find it as a good reason to catch up, get food or he might cook something or, um, yeah. Or every now and then I might cook something as well for him too. Yeah. Um, we don't do it as much, but I loved it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity then. Mm. We've talked about cooking, talked a little bit about drawing and as an artist, it's definitely something I want to talk to you more about and, and learn more about what that looks like now. But you said you studied as, you know, or in creative arts. Yep. What does that look like now and for you essentially since maybe leaving university? How... Yeah, it was interesting. I took a funny path. I thought that when I left uni, I'd sort of just jump into making art, but I actually had a bit of a hiatus from it. So what I did was um, a friend was starting an art gallery in Daenong and he said, this is basically once I was about to finish my course, Mm -hmm. like the week before, and he said, 
oh, I'm starting an art gallery. Yeah, it's going to be opening in like a month's time or less. And he's like, oh, do you want to be involved? I want you to be like my second-hand man in this space. I was like, and he, he said, we're not going to have any money at the moment, but we're just going to get into it and then opportunities and funding will come. So I was like, oh, I don't really, not too concerned. I would love to get the experience. Maybe mm-hmm. use some of my marketing skills and visual art skills, combine them, support the space. Basically, I got there. I thought there'd be more of a sort of structure and plan. There was like one exhibition set up for like the two weeks and that was it. There was no plan of what was going to happen after that oh. in this gallery space. But from there, I just learned so much like about all the sort of art skills and arts management and all these things. I had to learn on the go. I had no idea. Like visual arts, like school, it doesn't teach you those things. It's teaching you more about questioning your own sort of work and how you can develop that further, but not the... The, my course particularly didn't focus on the management side or working in the arts, which is yeah. different. So I learned all these skills there and I spent uh, many years at this space. So it was called Connection Art Space. Yeah. So it was several of us that um, sort of uh, founded the space and it's still running now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still involved now more in helping the funding side. But there I kind of learned everything I could in a few varying roles I was like the director for a bit but then also just helped in different ways as well mm-hmm. and I but because I was so busy with that I didn't really have time for my own art I had I had I would do things here and there yeah get into some some group exhibitions here and there but I kind of put my art mostly on pause for a few years and I, I kept trying to grapple with trying to do that and the work at the same time mm. but it was just too much so I just decided one time like I'm going to pause my own art work and come back to it and eventually I did come back to it so I, I feel like I really only came back to it in the last couple of years, to be honest, properly. Yeah. And what started, what started was getting to find a studio. I felt like I just needed a different space to work rather than trying to find space in the home or in random spots. I feel like I needed my own sort of creative space to like go there and just make work, basically. Yeah. And I, I found out that a few other friends were wanting to do the same thing. Nice. So we connected that way that those five of us that were like, okay, we're all looking for an art studio, studio space. Let's see if we can find one. And we wanted to find something near where we lived in Noble Park. Yep. And if you know the art world, basically there's a lot of studios in areas of like Brunswick near the city, but around Noble Park, Tainong, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing. So you can't even search for like, you know, art studio spaces. We just need to find a space to rent right. and turn it into an art studio, which is basically what we did. We found a, a garage, basically where it used to be a mechanic. Perfect. And we turned that into an art studio space. So that's called, we eventually turned it into like incorporated association. Mm. Or not a, yeah, incorporated sort of cooperative format. And basically it's just so we could have a shared bank account. And it was easy to pay bills. But there's five of us, we're really close friends and we sometimes do collaborative, collaborative projects together as well. Yeah. So we work on a mural right now, for example, yeah. in the community. And it's been, um, it's been great getting back into my art practice. So I've just got into uh, you know I had some exhibitions that I had and also some commissions and things like that so it's been really good getting in, back into it and it was sort of prompted by the studio space yeah which nice. really helped yeah I think having your own space like we're in a back room of the house that I'm renting at the moment yes and you know it's it's something it's yep. it's a work in progress but it's definitely a space where I can just be and have someone over and have a conversation and I have recorded many podcast episodes in this house in a different space but it wasn't solely my space mm. and there would be more resistance to showing up and and doing the thing when that was the case whereas mm. with this I know that really any time of day I could have someone around 
and I let my housemates know that, hey, I'm going to be recording and I can do it. And so having the space opens up so much more opportunity. You talking there about once you found this space, maybe making more stuff than you had previously. Yeah. If you go back to when you graduated uni, what was the practice of creating art like for you? If it was in, you know, a shared room at your house or in a space that maybe wasn't yours that you had to ask to get access to, like, yeah. was was that a thing that was maybe the harder part of, of creating for you? Well, at the time I was living at home and basically the garage, my parents were really supportive and the garage turned into sort of my studio space. It's also where my mom sometimes cooks as well. Cambodian people, they love cooking outside the house because they don't want the house to smell. Um, So (laughs) it was a cooking spot and also where my art was. Super creative spot. Yeah, so food food and art in the space, which is actually, I never never really registered that actually until you mentioned it now. But yeah, there's art in that space and food. So I would use that space for a while. But I, 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 eventually I moved out just like pre, just before COVID. Um, I moved out and it was in a share house and that's when things became much harder to make art in that space because, yeah. you know, you're in a share house and like anything I put up, even in the living room area, I got to pull it down kind of thing yeah. to, to make up for space. We didn't have enough space to have a separate studio space kind of thing. Sure. So, but they were even supportive housemates. I could have left stuff up, but I, I kind of like working at a much larger scale when yeah. I can. And it was a bit hard to do that in the space. So I was pretty adamant I would need to find a studio space. And yeah, I, it worked out well that once we moved to Noble Park, I had friends that were also looking for a studio space and I could find something closer to the community rather than having to go to somewhere like Brunswick, which I didn't really feel like I had a connection to mm-hmm. versus now I have a studio space in the community that I have a connection to. It's close to where I live. I can walk there in five minutes and you know do a mural that's literally down the road yeah uh, as well so it's it's been yeah it's been good having that that but yeah after uni it was just not yeah there wasn't that many spaces other than the garage but yeah yeah that's cool though that you've got that memories maybe mum cooking as well yeah. out there the creative process itself though like when you have the space when you sit down with your materials mm. to create art like what is that process can you define that for Maybe anyone listening, an aspiring artist. Yeah, some of it, some of it is like banging your head against the wall. Sometimes you just like. Sometimes I'm just forcing myself, sitting myself down, and like maybe maybe an exhibition opportunities come up, like a proposal. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sitting down, trying to think of an idea. Of I usually think of artworks in series. So I might have a series of paintings or a series of works. So I might just be sitting down, just just trying to find ideas, but. Often it's I, I need inspiration and all my artwork, my paintings are often using referencing something. So I can't, I just not, and very rarely it's from my imagination. It's like using family photos as inspiration, for example. So that might often is a starting point where I go through old family photos, like yeah. through the books, just to find a photo that's really interesting. And that, that I think tells a story that maybe within the photo itself, it, it, it can tell something but within a painting and me adding certain colors or the way it's framed or combined with other photos can tell a different story or highlight yeah. something so I often use that as a starting point more recently is photos mm-hmm. whether it's photos I take myself just from okay during the week I see something that's interesting so I take a photo I snap it and then I'm looking back through photos to see what I can use in a painting and then once I've got something that I find really interesting I'll pop it usually into like a Photoshop kind of program 
and I start thinking of structuring my image. So I'm really like quite structured in the way I paint. Yeah. I'll pop it into Photoshop and then, or, and then I'll start placing in, I might have seven, eight shots of one person, for example, mm. but if I'm doing a portrait and there's one shot where I've got their perfect angle of their sort of face, their, their image, and then another photo where I've got um, pulling in, maybe I've taken photos of their studio space and I'm taking photos of this chair and I'm going to crop it in because I, they've told me a story about this chair is really important to them. So I, I cut it out, put it into the image, mm. make it seem like it's part of the image uh, in a bit. And it's often that sort of cutting process until I get to a final image. Yeah. And then I'm happy with the sort of structure. And then I start painting. I'll sketch it up and start yeah. uh, playing around. Sometimes I decide exactly where I want specific colors that I feel like will, if it's like, for example, red to show kind of some kind of anger or something in the image or, mm. or green to reference, whatever it may be. But I'll just start, yeah, with that kind of process of uh, photos and a structure and then get into the painting process usually yeah love it thank you for sharing that man no worries yeah what's one of the maybe funnest or hardest pieces that you've you've done to this day i've i've seen yeah quite a few on your website but also on your on your instagram that you've shared but never in person yeah funnily enough like when we were playing together man i didn't even know yeah you were into art and i want to come to that in a second but on that question like what's maybe one of the the hardest or almost enjoyable pieces that you've you've painted yeah hardest it's a it's a good one there's a few tricky ones that pop into mind a little bit i would say i'll just i'll pick out two maybe one one was when i was trying to paint this doing this painting of my grandma it was kind of like this image that was like tying these several pieces together but what made it difficult was that i really wanted to get her likeness just because her, my grandma was like the pillar of the sort of family and she had passed away at the time and I was inviting family to this exhibition that was mostly politically kind of based images of Cambodia but there was kind of this perfect spot above this fireplace in the exhibition area where I could put another small painting and I knew like, okay, it's going to be perfect to have uh, a painting of my grandma there. Nice. That was kind of tying sort of the other works together. So that was just a bit hard in that sense that I wanted wanted to get that perfect because I knew family was coming, they would see that. Mm. But another one that might be maybe a bit more difficult was, I would say I've done paintings in the past where it was influenced by different things coming into the painting. So I would do a voice recording of, basically the concept behind these series was that in Cambodia, there's a there was a genocide that happened and, uh, and in that genocide, basically, there was before people were killed in the, a lot of these different spots. They uh, there's a place called Tulslang in museum in Cambodia. Basically, there's a lot of black and white portraits of people. It's people that have been killed during that genocide, yeah. and there were there was black and white portraits taken of them just before they were killed. So for many of these people, they don't even have a story. They don't have a name or anything connected to them because their whole families were killed as well. So there might be just a black and white portrait to, to tell their story. That's it. Oh. So. I, I was fortunate, uh, our family was fortunate that pretty much all our family survived that, that war in Cambodia and uh, that there's, you know, other things that now tell their story. You know, it's not just this one black and white portrait. So I would go reference photos. I would find photos and ask them to describe what's happening in the photo. And what I would do was that using that recording, I turned that recording into a visual. So like a sound, like a visual version of the sound. Like a sound wave. A sound wave kind of thing. Yeah. And that would be covering their face in the photo, in the in the painting, sorry. Yeah. I would use that to cover their face. And then in the background, 
um, you know, you might see like a license plate, you might see a building and that's like pretty much now instead of their face telling the story as like, as those photos were doing for those people that were killed, that was the only thing telling their story, their face. I did the opposite. So now everything else is telling their story. You know, the fact that they were, you know, they got a, their, their first car in Australia. You can see it in the background. You can see this building that they were visiting on a holiday. And the sound wave is kind of like that representation of that, the oral storytelling mm. that now is passed on because they survived as well. Wow. So I wanted everything else but their face to tell the story, which was a hard process to try to figure out all those moving bits and mm. how to paint it well. But yeah, I turned that into a series, which, which I was happy with in the end. And I might continue some similar things like that in the future. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, I didn't know about a Cambodian genocide, yeah. but the the idea of like that, for example, the telling of the story and like flipping it. Where did that one come from? That specific example, like, can you um, go back to to that? Like that? Yeah, I don't know. To me, I'm not an artist. Like yeah. in terms of a painter, it seems like a very original idea, though. But like that specific way to to represent that in a yeah. painting. I mean. Just hearing you describe it, it sounds like it's going to be a big, a big canvas for starters. I don't know how big it is or how yeah. like detailed and and yeah. small each little image in that is. But yeah, how does that idea come about? So I think it would have started because I when I visited Cambodia, I visited that museum where there was the black and white portraits, and I was just looking through content of like what I took of photos in Cambodia, and I was doing my honors at the time, so I was really concentrated on my painting. And I had a, a lecturer as well, and he saw some of the paintings I did, and one painting I did was. Basically, it was just like a, a shadowy figure of my sister. And I think he saw another painting of uh, that I was doing of the museum as well. And he, he kind of helped me join the dots together as well. He kind of asked the questions of like, oh, why did you leave your sister blank as this kind of silhouette in this train that's kind of quite eerie? And then we kind of started, I think he helped me kind of piece it together to think of this idea of actually, well, I didn't want to show her face. And why do I want to show a face? What 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 can that tell? What can, what kind of story can you tell by by removing someone's face and connecting it to something that is previously about only showing the face? And that was the, the portrait. So I think it's a lot about connecting dots together. So just using what is around you. So it, it sometimes art is about like you kind of ask a question. You just have to keep going. You kind of can't stop. It's like okay, why? why would you paint someone in this way? But why would you choose this color? Why should I do this? Why do you have to just keep pushing things further and further yeah. to get to some kind of resolve? It's, it's a weird process, but basically they kind of teach you that in the art school to keep questioning what you're doing, why you're doing it yeah. and then take it another step further. Yeah. And keep pushing it. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Outside of what they teach you in art school. And I know you mentioned already when you got into the space, the business side of stuff you had to learn as you were there but was there any part of the creative process that wasn't taught that you've learned either through the practice of creating art or through other you know real world examples or influences coming in yeah that maybe could help others well to start actually this is a good thing because you think at visual art school they might teach you how to paint actually like physically paint they don't teach you any of that really so it's almost like they're just talking about ideas and concepts and uh, I, I was hoping that I would get those technical skills. Like and even in sculpture classes, they don't teach you how to mold something or anything like that. They're just talking about ideas. And wow. that's kind of like the technical side of things. They leave it up to you to like learn yourself. So when it came to painting, I had no idea how to actually paint properly. 
like any rules, any ways you're supposed to paint, I was doing like the wrong thing. Like I was using dry brushes. I wasn't wetting them enough. I was using cheap, crappy stuff. I was painting on newspaper. I was painting on crappy boards. All these things that end up making my artwork quite unique as well. Because it, it makes the way, it makes the, the way the paintings look quite different. Like yeah. I have very half finished, scratchy looking paintings using uh, minimal colors. And part of it at the time was because I was a poor uni student. I couldn't <laughs> afford good brushes, good paints, good colors good canvases so I would choose boards to paint on because they're a bit cheaper I could paint bigger scale I could choose cheap paints I would choose cheap brushes that have a different effect I wouldn't even wet them properly I wouldn't even clean them properly so they also have this different effect and then and I'd start experimenting with using different things to make marks and all these things are really great in terms of like that creative process of knowing that you can you can mess with mess with things without having to know the actual proper way to do it yeah. You can start messing with things from the beginning, you know. Mm. You don't have to f be an expert at something to start playing around with yeah. things. Unless it's got to do with safety, then you got to be <laughs> careful. But none of that was that was dangerous. So that was really good and it, it, it opened my mind. I think if someone taught me the traditional way of painting, maybe I would have stuck to that at the beginning and have really precise looking traditional paintings. Now my paintings, often my paintings are very, I think people could, depicts my own sort of style sometimes like I was gonna say yeah so people can kind of see my style which I think I wouldn't have gained if I hadn't had this space to just try it my own way yeah it's cool I almost feel like there's no right way to do it it's just no. finding the way yeah that that works for you and just as you said you sort of have your own distinct style. I'm not even going to try to describe it, but I've definitely noticed there is like, yeah, a consistent theme in the works that you've done, that you've that you've shared online, which I think is cool, but it just yeah. comes about through through doing it. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's interesting that they yeah, don't teach you how to sculpt, it's more the ideas, because I actually would have thought it's the complete opposite, which maybe is what you thought as well, because yeah. as someone who never, I never even went to uni, but someone who's, for me, like delving more into my creative side, I feel like the technical aspects, even though that can be different for everyone, I almost feel like that's in some ways the important thing just to see what different ways there are of doing it. Like if you take mm. building houses, for example, as something that's maybe a bit more tangible than creating a painting, mm you're like building a room, like the one we're sitting in, you know, you've got to measure the certain wood and, you know, bang the nail in at this angle so that it stays upright in the wind and all yeah. of these things. There's not really, well, there probably is a lot of different ways that you could do that. Like for example, yeah, this, this roof that we're looking at, not great for people listening, but it's like arched up and it's not like flat roof. Yeah. Right. But that could be taught in like five or six different ways, but they're not just going to throw you the hammers and the nails and the wood and go figure it out. Yeah. I would say so. I would yeah. say that wouldn't be the case rather. Whereas the ideas for the painting or for the house, yeah. I think that would almost be go out and let the world inspire you. And like you said, when you traveled and saw this exhibit, that's a really cool way to, yeah, yeah. be influenced in a way that then shows up in the work that you do. Yeah. And I think uh, the way art has moved is that like, it's more about the, the idea or message behind it rather than the way it's presented. So right. that's why they don't want to hone you into a specific way of doing something. They don't want to teach you ways, a specific way of painting because your idea might be better suited as a video. 
yeah. for as a f- photograph or something, which I, I like that idea. Even though I do, I did wish I would learn more technical things. But I've kind of you can teach those things yourself. You can go on YouTube, whatever that is, totally. Rather than going to uni, but it's rather having questions, people probing you to sort of push your ideas and thinking of, okay, now that you, if you have an array of techniques that you can lean upon, what's the best way to represent your idea? Yeah, which is, I think is a nice way to think of how art can be quite open. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. Love that. There was something on your website that I wanted to reference. Seems like a good point. Pull this out one second. Yeah. So yeah, on your website you've got you know a bit of a bit of a write up, but one thing that really caught my eye was through workshops you aim to create two way engagement, which is embodied through painting, drawing, sound, and written language. Yep. You may not remember exactly writing that, or maybe someone else wrote it on your behalf. I'm not exactly sure, but the painting, drawing, sound, and written language. To me, it's quite obvious how the painting and the drawing shows up in the work that you do, but the sound and written language. I mean, you did show the example with like the actual sound wave of, of a recording maybe being drawn into the painting. Yeah. But how does the sound and written language show up in what you've created thus far and what you maybe ultimately hope to create in the future? Yeah, I feel like written language is probably an area that I, I do remember writing that now. I'm like, huh, interesting. Because um, I... It's something that actually I wrote so long ago, but I don't think I've actually started getting back into that until now, okay. quite recently. And I have a really strong focus on it now as well, actually. So with the written language side, um, something that I'm cur- currently doing right now is that I'm actually trying to relearn Khmer. So the Cambodian language is called Khmer. Khmer. So um, when I grew up, our parents actually taught us, even though they're from Cambodia and that's like their, f- their main strongest language, they taught us another language when we grew up, called Tijil, which is a Chinese dialect. And they taught us a language that they don't even know that well, <laughs> which is very strange that they would choose to do that. But it's because it's a language that their grandparents spoke and they wanted us to learn it as well, to have sort of it. Because I think it's something that they wanted, they wish they knew better when right. they were little so they could speak to their grandparents better. Yep. So do you speak Tijil now? Tijil, but not very well because okay. they only taught us a language that they don't know in depth. And we would often reply with a mix of English words as well. Right. But that meant, but they would speak to each other in Khmer. So they would speak to us in a language and they would speak to each other in a different language. Wow. So that's what we grew up with. And our aunts and uncles would sometimes speak to us in Tijil and sometimes in Khmer. Oh. So that's how we learned Khmer, just from listening in that way. But we never actually were, never really need to speak it. Yeah. So, but because it's like Cambodia and I feel like I want to like understand, you know, my own culture and history better that i've wanted to relearn it so i've actually started taking classes and lessons in it cool and part of it is i i feel like it's going to influence my artwork as well because yep. of my artwork so influenced by cambodia so i started trying to teach myself how to write as well so it's a script it's a different uh, it's not in english letters yep. so I've, I've started trying to teach myself a little bit of that and just and i've got like a weekly class that i just basically do to improve my speaking so i'm hoping that I believe that in some way that's going to influence my work because painting itself is about a message and it's about, it's a language in itself. It's like something that people can see and they can interpret in their own way. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's definitely going to happen at some point that I'm going to have written language sort of incorporating the work, whether it's Khmer language or, or other words otherwise. Old paintings I've used like, for example, um, not written language, but I use like clothing brands and logos like, obey or something and I pop it onto a painting of a soldier and yeah. it starts to 
you know, people start to rethink what that word obey means in that situation. Yeah. Or like I'll use the control from a keyboard onto like this picture of like mass media, like all these f- f- photographs of, of paparazzi Love as it. they were like um, taking photo of this uh, Cambodian leader mm-hmm. uh, who was very like uh, considered very corrupt at the time. But I was using that like that words in that painting, like kind of embedded in the painting yeah. so that people can think it kind of helps direct people maybe what they might think when they see that image yeah. and what I might be thinking as, as I was creating it. So that's where some written language comes into place. And sound, I think, I'm not too sure how sound comes into place other than what I shared earlier, but I feel like sound is such a, it's, it's almost like oral storytelling is such a big thing. Yeah, particularly in a lot of migrant, migrant families and cultures where maybe um, even written, written stories aren't as, as common. Mm-hmm. Or um, things were lost, like during war, a lot of their photos of when they were younger were lost, for example. So everything yeah. that is shared as a story, there's no videos out there or anything like that. It's just them kind of sharing a story that we can kind of relay in the future. Yeah. So maybe my current kids in the future or whatever that is. So I think sound and written language kind of are, yeah, important parts. and They'll, they'll play some kind of role in future artworks I make. Yeah. Cool, man. You're yeah. a really good speaker, so maybe you do more of this sort of storytelling <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I, I, I do like, I want to open my, my practice up a bit more and think about how I can share other, like I, I wrote I wrote a poem once to pair with a painting because I feel like there was a painting I was doing that was connected to sort of like me growing up in a family that was like Buddhist, yep. and then they enrolled us in a Catholic school. Okay. So basically we got baptised and everything and then at home we'd be doing Buddhist things really? as well. So it was this weird mix and I tried to do a painting about it and I felt like the painting couldn't communicate what I was trying to say exactly. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll write a poem about it as well yeah. that will pair with it. So I wrote a poem, but I never shared the work or the poem, wow. but I still have it around. And I was like, one day I'll share it, but I don't feel like it's completely ready. Dude, I'd love to see it when you feel it's ready. Yeah, I, cool. I, I might be able to show you after this podcast what the painting looks like. But yeah, the poem's right. not really finished. But I can show you at least the, the visual artwork. And I thought one day I'll maybe I'll perform it at a spoken word kind of event and I'll have the, the image in the background yeah. as the sort of how I would want the work to be shared. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Just to yeah. speak on my own experience in the creative space with this podcast – I started it because I wanted to be able to have these long conversations with whether it was a stranger or an old friend that I hadn't really chatted with in over a decade like yourself. But just the ability to do that is less common these days. I think in this world where like I went for a walk this morning and I had my phone in my pocket and at times had pulled it out and was doing things on it. But I, I remember walking down this path for a stretch of about 300 metres and I think maybe like four or five people walked past and they were all on their phone Mm. looking down. And this is like 8am in the morning and I'm guilty of it. We're probably all guilty of it at different points in time. But the fact that like we've sat here now, recorded for an hour, Mm. haven't looked at or picked up our phones. I mean, I adjusted the camera that I'm filming on briefly, but like we're actively listening and talking. I think it's a, like, it's a lost art. For sure. That we need to have more of. And I feel like it probably does show up in the work that you do quite a lot and I know that people listening to this are the type of people who would also have some of that practice in their life but outside of the art I know we've touched on football as well which is another point where you know you're not out there running with your phone or technology yeah. 
how else does that show up for you or is that yeah like important in in your life do you mean having that sort of break from that t- t- yeah, yeah whatever it is and and ultimately the human connection i mean we talked about cooking as well yeah you know no definitely it is important to be honest actually soccer i, I know we mentioned it before but soccer is a huge thing in terms of just having a one hour and a half where you cannot you cannot touch your phone you know and you have to be very present like there's not many things now in life where you have to be 100 percent present with what you're doing and like i love that about soccer you know mm-hmm. like it's like it's a physical thing so it's like it was almost giving my body a break but it's like i have to be present there the whole time and i think i've more and more i, I kind of try to be off my phone and try to put things in place to stop it and i think being at the studio for example is one great way of doing it because when i'm there it's like other artists that are there and we're just kind of chatting and just and they're close friends so it's like you know you kind of just want that connection with people often and they, they're so close it's like an extension of our house i can walk there in five minutes so yeah. it's great to have that option to just to go there be with other artists and just just chat have a tea sometimes you know i'll be working on my paintings as well but i think more and more i realize like you just kind of want that more and more in life and i think i used to always have that in a sense because living with family i'd always have people around yeah and I only realized that during COVID, I, how much I missed family and that sort of connection yeah. without seeing them. And I, it was crazy to think that I really, really missed them because we just, we didn't speak that much at home. We kind of just around each other and speak a little bit, but just realized how much you miss connecting with people and how, how everyone, I think everyone needs that in some sh- shape or form. Yeah. And it's like COVID made me really realize that as well. Mm. And and now having that option of having a space where I can connect with people, I feel so fortunate that I can, at any point, because there's always people there pretty much at yeah. any time, walk five minutes and I've got that connect option to connect with people yeah. that I love as well. That's great, man. Yeah, Being conscious of, of the spaces and the people that you interact with and that ultimately you can create that for your life, I think is an important thing that I've realised more as I've gotten a bit older. Yeah, We sort of briefly laughed about it before but the fact that i didn't know that you were even into painting when we were playing together i would have been 18 you would have been yeah maybe 18 19 yeah why do you think that was do you were you conscious of that i know you were probably you know about to go into uni or starting you know first year of uni or something but i think um well, that time I probably was just starting art a little bit, but even now, a lot of soccer teams I play with, they probably would even know that I painted or was an art or I'm an artist at all. And I think it's just probably a few different reasons. I think partly, I think maybe some people may not be too interested. Partly is my mind is my own possession. Even though most people, when I show them my artwork, they do have some kind of interest. Yeah. But I feel like I just keep it a bit more separate. I feel like. I just have like different hats on at different times, yeah. like football, soccer, and maybe other hats as well. And for, for people that I'm really open with and I'm close with, I'll share those things. But in football, I kind of just treat it, um, I treat it as a sort of different thing, to be honest. Yeah. And sometimes it just doesn't intersect. And I, I, usually I just don't really reveal everything about myself unless someone really asks, to be honest. Sure. I just, I'm just often like that, yeah. No, it's fair enough. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, but I... Like my impression of you when we were that age, you're like a very, very good footballer for starters, even though we both played reserves. Yeah. I think we, we got into the senior team a few times. Yeah. They were having a shocking season. Yeah. But outside of that, like very hardworking and humble, but very friendly guy. Like I always felt like 
like always could be a good friend with you, even though we've obviously had different, you know, lives and different paths these past 10 years and haven't, haven't really hung out too much, but there's been a few little crossovers since. But yeah, the fact that I, I never knew is, is intriguing because yeah, there's parts of my life as well that I don't, you know, that you probably wouldn't know about. And there's almost certainly things, plenty of things that I won't know about after we stop recording this conversation. But I think yes. it, it talks to a lot of what I've learned in having these conversations with people that there's so much more than just what you see when they're maybe wearing, yeah, that specific hat that you know them for in that case of, of you as a footballer. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I, I think there's some things that I don't know why I choose to hide it, but like, for example, I, I really love dancing. Which yeah. I don't know, but I used to do break dancing for a couple of years. No, but I actually just saw on one of your Instagram posts before yeah. you got here, you were busting a move. Yeah, yeah. I think in your Instagram story yesterday. Yeah, so that there's, was awesome. there's people that I've known, I had known for like, <laughs> they were close friends for like maybe I'd say five, six years. And then there was like a dance thing that kind of came up. And then um, I just danced at this event that we had. Wow. And then they were like, oh, well, what the hell? I didn't know you danced. But I think I just, I just kind of like, sometimes it's different to tell someone something and then to actually show someone something. Mm. And I, I feel like if I told someone I danced, I'd just be like, okay, cool. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I feel like I just like to keep things as a surprise sometimes, you know? You're a that, mysterious man. Mysterious. You know, I just feel like I also have some cards in my deck, you know, just to surprise <laughs> people every now and then. So dancing is always a good surprise card. And sometimes art can be a good surprise card too because – yeah, I, I don't know. I just it's just part of my nature that I just prefer to keep it close to me, or I will share it when it by actually just doing it or sharing yeah. the, the artworks. I had my some of my closest friends that I knew I was studying, but they hadn't seen any of my paintings until I had this exhibition and, and show. I didn't ever show them before then, and they were like shocked, which is really a nice thing yeah. to to surprise someone. I think it's partly artists love doing that as well. If you're right. an artist, like if you're working on paintings, you don't want to show them the works until the exhibition day, you know? Totally. You, want, you want to show them like the final result when yeah. it looks good, surprise yeah. people, get that kind of reaction. So um, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just being selfish and just like waiting for that cool reaction <laughs> I get from people or something. Yeah. 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 Now the, the phrase show don't tell comes to mind as a cop. Right. I used to work as a copywriter, but it's that idea of, yeah, you've got to show through the words even. Yeah. Because as a copywriter, you're, you know, obviously putting words down on paper, but that idea that, yeah, you're, showing people that you're a dancer by dancing not yeah. telling them that you're a dancer yeah. i think it's cool but yeah whether it's the mysterious side or whatever i mean we're obviously having this conversation you know podcasts it's people just going to be listening yeah. they're not seeing you dance or seeing you paint in real time as we go about this but i feel like there's probably a few other things that are mysterious that you know whether we share them now or not <laughs> yeah i can't think of anything come else to the fore. i can't think of anything else right now that's too too mysterious there's the ones that usually pop up in mind like art and dancing yeah. surprise people but um yeah it's cool that's really it all creative things man this has been a really fun fun chat i've got yeah. a few more questions uh before we go but yeah, yeah. really enjoyed reconnecting with you after yeah. after all this time it's been so long yeah yeah i think last time was that soccer but i think i don't know if we played indoor soccer but together before then is that another time maybe i remember coming to playing in flemington with you oh. and Farrell. oh yep yep you yep. still hang out with him at all i do season? yeah 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 he, is he, he still playing he's still playing he's he, he had been playing he was playing professionally for a bit i don't know if you wow he was playing professionally in thailand so Amazing. he's a he's a great guy i'm, I'm really close with him one yeah. of my closest friends so yeah we we still catch up a lot and he's for me he's actually a big inspiration he's just work so hard on his football yeah you know i think in australia once you hit a certain age you kind of stop yeah. you think there's a barrier to like 
reaching whatever level you want. But he like he kind of went overseas, played football, became professional, and just um just a great guy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. But yeah, I remember playing in Flemington maybe mid 2010s, like 2013, oh, 14, right. maybe. Yeah, maybe a few years after that. But anyway, yeah, it's been it's been a while, but but fun. I would love to know for you, 31, have this space doing these creative things you've got that mural that you mentioned but i'm sure there's more to come what what does the future like look like for you whether that's you know one year five year ten year whatever comes to mind if you would care to share sure uh, it's hard I'm, I'm not too sure what i want to do in terms of like my, my plan last year was like i want to be make sure i work in the art space mm. be working professionally in the arts so now i work as a curator yeah. in marinda so working with artists helping them set up their exhibitions and my goal is still to keep learning like any role I take I should be learning a lot in the role yeah I don't want to be comfortable just just yet at all and I'm still wanting to work part-time so that I can keep working on my art practice yeah so my my goal is to keep pushing my art practice and do more exhibitions and then it will probably eventually be changing sort of shifting my professional arts role as well so that I can um probably just try learn learn more in the arts area so yeah, it's 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 a bit hard to say right now. So usually I'm pretty clear about what I want to do in the next kind of few five years, but sure. it's gonna be working on my art practice and then I think in the next two, three years I probably in the next two years I probably wanna shift roles slightly. Mm-hmm. Instead of working specifically in art curating, which is exhibition focused, maybe work in an area that's like arts marketing where I would be doing the marketing for lots of lots of different arts departments, like performing arts, exhibitions, programs, so that I could learn from them as I'm supporting their marketing, yeah, which nice. I think is a great way to learn yeah. about different industries to like do the marketing role because I could have had marketing roles in the past. So I think I would love to do that in the future just so I can learn and absorb that knowledge and support them using my marketing skills. Amazing. Yeah. On a personal side, where do you see football, breakdancing, family? You mentioned partner before. Do you yeah. plan to have kids? I'd love to know if you don't mind sharing yeah. all of that. And well, we're getting married next year and we do plan to have kids at some point. Oh, amazing. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say I'd probably see kids probably towards the end of the five-year mark yeah. Yeah, as well. How many, how many kids do you want? I'd say like at least two. At least two. At yeah. least two. Well, you're the one of you're one of two. One right? of two. So I feel like two is good because you know yeah. you want having 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 a sister was good growing up. You know, like yeah. even though sometimes you get into arguments, it was really good to have that. Like, of course. Um, you have you have a few brothers and sisters. I'm the eldest of seven. Eldest seven. You have heaps. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I want five. <laughs> you want five? It's oh, crazy. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. No, like, I think I think when you have a good experience and you're younger, you kind of want to replicate that experience for. Yeah. Kids. For your, your, your future, future generation, right? And, exactly. And, and see what what it's like for your parents. That's what I'm like. I'd love to experience that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that um, in terms of football, you know, it's football's a funny thing. You know, I wish I could quit sometimes in my mind, <laughs> but I can't quit. I just love it too much. Like mm. it's just kind of like it's not like it's like breathing. I, I could, like how I describe football. It's like I need it just to feel like there is air in my lungs, <laughs> even if I hate it sometimes and I'm frustrated by it. I feel like I always have to keep playing it, yeah. and if I keep playing it. I don't necessarily have a goal. I just want to keep playing, and I, I keep train. I still train in my own time, just because like if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. Yeah, and I want to push myself to keep improving, mm-hmm. even if even at 31, I want to keep improving at soccer. Mm-hmm. So, I want to just keep playing and pr- improving in that. And then, what was the other area? So like family as well. Yeah, just just probably kids in the next five years. Yeah, and getting married next year, man. That's and huge. Getting married. Congrats. Yeah. 
Thanks. Yeah. And maybe more travel, actually. I haven't traveled the world that much. Yeah. So we are going to have like a honeymoon in like India, most likely. Yeah. In a very different area. I, I haven't Is been- your partner Indian or just going to India? No, she's just like, like white Australian. But yeah. we just thought we'd travel somewhere that's harder to travel when you have kids. Somewhere yeah. that's a bit more tricky to travel to. Nice. When you're, so we thought we'd do something a bit more challenging now. Um, but yeah, I've never really had that much of an urge to travel because I feel like I've always just been so- focus on what I'm doing here yeah. and I've enjoyed what I've been doing here but I think it's good to you know expand your mind so I think learning is still a big principle for me yeah in the next five years learning through new work through travel perhaps mm-hmm. yeah beautiful man yeah yeah thank you for sharing the the question I always like to end on sure. which is one that was sort of inspired by listening to a lot of podcasts before I started my own guys like Tim Ferriss Joe Rogan yes. most people have heard of yes but they would ask these super successful guests, what advice would you give to your younger self? And I always thought, well, it's easy for those guests to answer the answer that was always quite similar because they were successful by cause of being on this podcast. Not yeah. the reason they were successful, but yeah. the reason they're on the podcast is because they were successful, right? So I was like, well, what would the everyday person answer? My neighbor, my dad, my old you know, midfield mate. Yeah. Do we win the league that year? I think we might have, or we well, maybe just missed close. it. Yeah. But, you know, we dominated the midfield here 15 years or 12 years later, whatever the case may yeah. be. I would love to know for you, Andrew, and you're 31. So when someone's sort of this age, I like to put both of these sort of ends to them. But what advice would you give to maybe your 61-year-old self, if you could project 30 years into the future? Okay. And then if you feel like answering to your younger self, maybe to your 15, 16-year-old self, that boy who is... Maybe cooking with his cousin. Yeah. Wow, I don't, I've never thought about this. What I would give advice to my 61-year-old self. Um, for 61, I would say something like along the lines of, um, like just to keep enjoying things. Like I think people. the funny thing is that people would give me warnings once I turned 30. Like you're gonna be, your body's gonna be sore. You're gonna wake up. <laughs> I had friends that used to call me young blood at work because I was oh, the youngest really? person there. I was only like maybe 26, 27 at the time. But they were like, once you turn thirty, man, they were like thirty five. Man, you're gonna be sore when you wake up. You know, you gotta be able to play soccer the same. And I'm, I'm probably fitter than I've ever been before, to be honest. And it's, yeah. I think it's, I think it's that mentality of. But I would say that sixty one year old self is like, just keep that mentality you have of like. Um, you know, if there's something you want to do, go for it, you know, like do it and and, and, and enjoy it. And that the age shouldn't be stopping you from, 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 from doing that. Love that. So, yeah, I know that's really basic, but like, I feel like that would just be a message that I want to continue to, to hold. And 16 year old self, I would also say just enjoy it more. Like, I think I realized that when even things like football, I put so much pressure on myself that sometimes I would enjoy, like I mentioned, I did, I enjoyed training sometimes more than games because I put so much pressure on myself in games mm. that I would often not enjoy them as much. Yeah. And I just, only in the last couple of years was I able to flip my mindset. I used to, I, now I always say three things to myself before a game. I say, one, it's just a game. And that kind of helps me just to relax and realize that it is just a game. It doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. Two, I love playing games. And I love to win. And that was like the three things that like I put in my mind. One is to say, I love playing games just to remind myself to really enjoy it. And then 
I love to win is to help me just the drive, just give me a bit of drive. So I would tell that probably, I'd probably say that to my 16 year old self. I'd say those three things. It's just a game. You love playing games. You love to win. Beautiful. Yeah. Mate, I've loved this conversation. This has been very fun. Yeah, any, definitely. Any final words before we go? And can you let people know where they can get in touch with you, see your work, sure. connect online, wherever? Well, where I post my work is you can go on Instagram, just go at Andrew Dong. So Andrew and then Dong, D-U-O-N-G, art. So you can see a lot of my art stuff. Final words is, no, this is great. Thank you for having me. Like, I... I just love um i listen to a lot of podcasts myself so i love yeah. this first time probably being involved in a long podcast so yeah, yeah I, I don't think i have any final words other than just thank you for having me and i've been enjoyed this process of chatting You're catching welcome, up yeah. yeah it's been a lot of fun i'm very grateful to have you today i'll put all those links in the show notes and things that we chatted about but yeah brother appreciate your time thank you thanks for And there it is, another episode of the Hope Initiative. Thank you so much to Andrew for joining me and taking the time for the conversation, mate. It was good to reconnect and I look forward to coming down and checking out some of your art at your space and also having a kick with you again sometime soon. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. You've obviously stuck around for an hour and a quarter hour and 15 odd minutes so much appreciated as always if you enjoyed this conversation there's links in the show notes to the things that we chatted about and if you would like to subscribe and share with someone that you think will benefit from it that would be fantastic and until next time keep creating your life and all the very best